Welcome to Seacoast Church. My name is Ernest Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at the Long Point campus. I want to thank all of you that are joining us at an off-site location. Maybe uh, you're on the internet listening or uh, maybe the Asheville campus or North Charleston campus or one of our many other campuses. Or maybe you're right here at Long Point campus and you're just at another venue. I want to thank you for joining us as well. I am so excited to be up here with you this weekend because it was one year ago to this weekend that me and my wife, uh, we were expecting a pretty big change in our lives. And I was speaking at the services and we weren't sure if our, our, our new son that was going to be born into the world, if he was going to stay cooking long enough um, to make it through all the services. And he did. And uh, five days later and, and 27 hours of labor later, thank you, Sarah, um, our, our son was born, Wyatt Daniel Smith. Here's a picture of him. Yep, he's got his mama's looks, thank goodness. So, um, But I just want to say thank you uh, to all of our Seacoast family who has been there for us. Uh, we have a lot of uh, family, a lot of biological family here in Charleston, and we're so thankful for each one of them. Uh, but we are so thankful for our Seacoast family as well. Uh, many of you have been there for us to support us, to encourage us, um, and to, uh, to teach us how to be parents. So we just, I just want to say thank you. Um, now that the, uh, the family reunion's over and we've seen pictures and we've exchanged stories, not really, but we're going to continue with the series that we started last week. Pastor Josh started a series called Vantage Point. And basically what we're doing is we're taking a look at how different people in the first century, how they view the cross and what their vantage point of the cross really was. And last week, Pastor Josh, he, he started off with taking a look at Peter and how when Peter first saw the cross, he thought that ultimately it meant failure. I mean, he had spent his last three years uh, with Jesus, hanging out with Jesus, and now Jesus is on a cross. He must have thought that that was a time of failure. But at a closer examination of the cross and understanding the power of the cross, he realized that ultimately it meant victory. Well, the group that we're studying today had the opposite experience. When they first looked at the cross, they saw victory. But when they came to understand the power of the cross, it only meant defeat for them. You know, the, the opposition, they, they simply looked at the cross as being a, a little bit of a victory for them. But when they really looked at it, they, they thought, man, this has messed everything up. And I think a lot of us have been there before. I mean, for some of you, you grew up in the church. And so you like, you know, all the songs and you've sang them, you know, you sang Jesus loves me. This I know. Come on, everybody. For the Bible. This whole, what is, you guys don't know the songs? Come on. This crowd over, man. Well, we know the songs. I mean, you know that you may know the stories. I mean, you know, you've heard of, of Noah and the ark and you know that, you know, Moses went to the, the river and he stuck his staff in and he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, you know, that type of thing. Or maybe you've just seen the movies, you know, but you know the stories, but it wasn't until you met Jesus face to face that everything got messed up. Or maybe for some of you, you didn't grow up in the church. And for those of you that, that, that are like myself, I mean, when you, when you first saw the crosses or maybe you see the crosses on the sides or on the building, you think, well, that's good. I mean, that's, that's good for someone else's faith. It's good for them to believe. But when we come to understand the power of the cross, it messes everything up. It did for me. I was a junior, and uh, my, my goals at that point were to either be a Navy SEAL or a junior in high school, either a Navy SEAL or a sports broadcaster. I mean, those two kind of go hand in hand, you know, in the same field and all that. And, and I was really, uh, that's, those were my hopes. But when I got confronted with the claims of Christ, that he is that he, who he said he is, and, and he had come to do what he had said he'd come to do. I had a choice. I could either reject what, the, what truth was in front of me and, and keep living my life for myself, or I could allow the cross to radically transform me. And that's what I did. And as I'm standing up here before you, I'm obviously not a Navy SEAL, and the only sports broadcasting I do is when I'm yelling at the TV when Georgia's losing yet another game. <clears throat> so the power of the cross, it messed me up. But it was a good thing, because it meant life transformation. You see, the group that we're studying today didn't have 
such luck. We're going to talk about the opposition. You know, there are many opponents to Jesus. There were many people who despised Jesus. They didn't despise the son of God because of what he did. I mean, there's not a whole lot of people who don't like someone for healing a woman of her sickness or raising a little girl back to life or, or taking a blind man who can't see from his birth and giving him sight for the first time. That's just not something you get angry at someone about. These people, they despised Jesus because of who he said he was and what he said he had come to do. You see, Jesus ultimately said he's not just the son of God or the son of man, but he is God. And he was coming to set up a new kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We see he's having this, this discussion with the religious leaders in John chapter 8. And they're asking him, they say, Jesus, who do you think you are? Like, who do you really think you are? And after a little lengthy discussion with them, Jesus says, you know, Abraham, I mean, the father of your faith, the guy that you guys love and you trust in, you believe in. Abraham said that he was going to rejoice when he saw my day. And when he saw it, he did rejoice. The guys are like, ah, uh, Jesus, I don't know if you know this yet, but you're not even 50 years old, and yet you say that you've seen Abraham. How is that? And in John 8, 58, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You see, for many of us, it's just a simple comment. It's just a simple statement. Before Abraham was, I am. But to his audience, they knew exactly what Jesus meant. See, to say the term I am is to say the name of God. You've got Moses in the desert, and when he approaches the burning bush, he says, who are you? And God from the burning bush says, I am the great I am. The term I am is the name of God. And to say the name of God in this day and age was illegal. They, it was fear, they were fearful of dishonoring God and disrespecting God. So you couldn't even say the name of God. You couldn't spell the name of God. And then what makes it worse is that Jesus not only says the name of God, but he says, I am. He's claiming to be God. And that was an offense only punishable by death. And we know that this is exactly what the Jewish leaders thought he meant, that Jesus saying that he is God, because the very next verse says that they picked up stones to stone him. There would have been no reason to stone Jesus except for the fact that he claimed to be God. This was one reason that they, the opposition, they despised him. Another reason they despised him is because why he said he was coming, what he was coming to do. You know, in, G, in Luke chapter four, Jesus makes a proclamation of what he's coming to do. This wasn't like a State of the Union address where, you know, he's like trying to build up hope for the people of a better tomorrow. This isn't the, the proclamation some Cubs fans around here make that this year is the year, you know, and a month later their hopes are dashed. You know, this is Jesus making a bold statement of this is why I have come. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus speaks these words in the presence of not only Jewish people, but the Jewish leaders. And he's saying, this is why I've come. I've come to set up a new kingdom. And in this new kingdom, the poor will be taken care of. Those who are sick will be healed. Those who are held captive to their sins will be released. Those who are oppressed and in bondage will be set free. I have come to declare the year of the Lord's favor which is a new era, a new time of blessing. It's when God brings his kingdom on earth down here to heaven. Jesus is not just saying he's the king, but he's saying he's establishing a new kingdom. And this is yet another reason why the opposition despised Jesus. But why would they oppose him? I mean, really, if he's God, why do you oppose God? If he's establishing a new kingdom that would be the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen, why would you oppose him? 
Well, we're going to study today three different groups, three different uh, groups who oppose Christ, and we're going to understand their reasonings. And I think these are also three reasons that even you and I oppose God in our lives many times. The first is that when the people saw the cross, they thought Jesus is weak. Jesus is weak. You see, if Jesus is claiming that he is God, but yet he's up on the cross and he's dying, there's only really one explanation in their minds, and that's that he's weak. And the people that we can study to, to, to understand this is the Jewish people themselves. Now, I say that with some slight hesitation because at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Jewish people loved Jesus. I mean, they thought he was their Messiah. He was a healer. He was one that they could put their trust in. You see, since 586 BC, the Jewish people had been under the oppression and, and captivity of many different nations. Except for about a hundred years, they had been under captivity for centuries. And up until this point, when Jesus comes onto the scene, they were under the, the captivity of the Roman people for about a hundred years. And they're thinking, man, this guy might be the guy to save us. This Jesus guy might just be the guy that's going to help us be set free, to take us away from captivity, to take us away and, and, and give us the freedom that God yearns for us to have and that we yearn to have. He was doing all the right things. He was saying all the right things. Maybe Jesus was the Messiah. But then something happened. If you know the story, the last week of Jesus' life, he walks into Jerusalem and the crowds are going crazy. I mean, it's like the Cubs, no, the, the Yankees, no, it's like the Braves have won the World Series and the, the people are lining the streets and they're just so excited. And they're like, Jesus is coming, the King. He's finally come to set us free. Jesus, our King, is now here. Wait to see what happens. But then a few days pass and the unthinkable happens. Jesus is thrown over to the hands of, of the religious leaders, of, to the authorities, and he's beaten He's cursed at, he's laughed at. I mean, this is no way for a king to be treated. But what makes it worse is Jesus didn't do anything about it. I mean, he put up no fight. He made no proclamations of war. He didn't call in some troops to help save him. And in fact, when one of his disciples, Peter, did use violence to defend Jesus, Jesus rebukes him. This is no way for a king to act. The people at that point must have, must have been confused. It must have been bitter. I mean, this was the guy that was coming to save them. This was the guy coming to set them free. And yet he was hanging there on the cross. They must have thought he, must, he was weak. We can see that from Mark chapter 15. It says, those who passed by hurled insults at him. This is when Jesus is on the cross. Shaking their heads and saying, so, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't, he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The people believed that he had failed. He said that he was God, and yet he's hanging on a cross. The only explanation to them must be that Jesus is just simply a man who is weak. And I think many of us believe and, and have our faith uh, uh, much like the first century Jews. I mean, we would never really say that Jesus is weak, but the reality is our faith and our actions show that that's exactly what we're believing. And for a lot of us, we think, well, Jesus, you know, he was a good guy. I mean, he set a great example for human beings to follow. But God, I'm not sure about that. 
I mean, I'm not sure if he's the savior of the world, if he's the Messiah, if he's this coming king. I'm not sure he's who he really said he was. For those, for those in that boat, they, what, what we begin to do is we begin to establish a system of works. And we think if we just do enough good things, then maybe our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds and then we'll have entrance into heaven. Or maybe if we just believe something else. I mean, surely all religions go to the same place, right? Surely all these great religious leaders end up in the same place, right? But the reality is Jesus said that he is God and that he is the only way to heaven. There is no other way to have entrance into heaven. There's no good works that you can do. There's no other person that you can believe in except for Jesus Christ. I want to encourage those of you that aren't believers. There's many of us in this place today that don't fully believe in Christ. And I believe that God is drawing you to himself today. That God yearns for you to know the truth of who Jesus really is. That he is God. And he came to save you. And to give you salvation. But for those of you that are believers and you're like, whew, man, I'm good with that one. You know, I said a prayer a while ago. Let me challenge you as well. I think there are many of us believers that also have a system of works. That we think if we just do enough good things, if we just go to church enough, if we just read the Bible enough, if we just give enough money, then maybe God will be pleased with us. Maybe we can see God's favor. Maybe God will love us even more. And we would never say that Jesus is weak, but the reality is if we have a system of works, we're saying the cross wasn't enough and that we need to add to it. Can I speak some truth to you? Jesus is not weak. In fact, he's strong. And on the cross, he says, it is finished. For those of us that are living in a system of works, God wants us to understand that there is no way that God could ever, ever love you any less than he does right now. There are many of us that are struggling because we've committed some sin and we think maybe God's removed his favor. God has removed his love from us, but God can never love you any less than he does right now. And he can never love you any more than he does right now as well. God's love is complete and it was made complete on the cross. And we can see that based on Colossians chapter one. We read, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. May we come to know who Jesus really is. That he said he is God. That's exactly who he is. May we come to understand Jesus was not weak. But in fact, the, cro the cross shows that he was strong. The second reason that people oppose Jesus, because they see the cross and they think that he's defeated. They think that he's defeated. <clears throat> this is exactly what Jesus' number one opponent thought, Satan. I mean, when Jesus comes onto the scene he becomes the, the greatest threat that Satan has ever seen. I mean, let's face it. Satan had his free reign of the place up until this point. I mean, he easily deceived Adam and Eve into rebelling against God. He had Cain choose Abel as the first homicide victim. He set up the right environment, the right situation for, Bas for David to see Bathsheba bathing on a roof, making her the first desperate housewife. We see God raising up the Jewish people. I mean, we see Satan kind of stirring the pot with the Jewish people. And as God raises up these prophets to speak truth and to speak God's word, the Jewish people kill God's own men. Satan must have thought at that point, he's got to be winning. I mean, almost every battle, it looks like Satan has won, at least in his mind. What he doesn't understand is that God has a master plan and that God uses all things to redeem humanity. 
He uses all things to draw men unto himself. But Satan doesn't understand that. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he thinks, man, this guy is a threat. So he decides to pay him a visit out in the wilderness. And he goes to him. He says, hey, Jesus, you, you want some power? Man, I can give you power. Hey, hey, Jesus, you want authority? Because I can give you all the authority there is. Just bow down. Just worship me. And Jesus quotes some scripture, rebukes him, sends him on his way. And at that point, he's the greatest threat Satan has ever seen. He begins casting out demons. He begins healing people. He begins forgiving people of their sins. But then he makes that bold statement in Luke chapter 4, where he says, I have come to set up a new kingdom. And in this kingdom, the poor will be taken care of. Those who are sick can be healed. Those who are held captive and in bondage to their sin can be set free. Jesus is personally threatening the, the, the kingdom of Satan. He's saying, Satan, you might have had free reign of the place right now, but my kingdom is now being established. This is a direct threat against Satan. And so he does, you know, what, what he thinks he does best, and that's create a plan. And he gets his, his greatest uh, weapon, human beings, to conspire against Jesus and to do to him what they had done to the prophets, and that's kill him. And we know that story. And we must think that while Jesus is on the cross, Satan is thinking he is one. But what he doesn't know is that God is completely in control. And that what's happening up on that cross is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. And that's, he's establishing a new kingdom. But Satan doesn't understand this. And I think many times we don't either. And I think a lot of times when we see Jesus, when we understand or we see what he's done on the cross, there are many of us, we hear that he's come to set up a new kingdom that he's come to set people free, that he's come to heal people. But a lot of times we don't see those promises coming true in our lives. And it's like our faith has become defeated. And we would never say that Jesus is defeated out loud. We would probably a lot of times not even think that, but the reality is in our faith and the way our prayers are, are given to God, it's like we think, can God really do the miraculous anymore? I mean, there are many of us in this place and you're praying for a reconciliation in some relationship. And the other party just doesn't seem to be responding. Or maybe you've been praying for healing for yourself or for someone else for weeks or months or even years and you're seeing no results. Or maybe you've had a kid that's walked away from the Lord, walked away from the church and, and you see no results from praying for them. You just see them continuing in their own sin. Or maybe you keep coming every week and taking the same sin issue to the cross week after week after week and you wonder, can God really set you free? And I was 19 and a half years old, and I'd been struggling with the disease my entire life. I'd been to all kinds of doctors, all kinds of hospitals. I had tried experimental medication, everything, and nothing worked. And when I accepted Christ right before I turned 17 years old, I thought, man, I'll start praying. And I'll start asking God to heal me. I'd heard that he could do that. I'd heard testimonies of other people. But the reality is I thought the same would continue to happen in my life, and that was nothing. I remember I was at a church one time and, uh, when I was 19 and a half and I was listening to a pastor speak on a very similar message to this right here. And he was saying that if you truly want God to do something in your life, that you must believe that what Jesus did on the cross meant victory, that it meant completion, that it is truly finished. And then he said these words. He said, there's someone in here today that is struggling with an illness and you've been praying to God, but you haven't really believed that God can heal you. And God wants you to know that he can heal you, but you must trust him. You must have faith. Now, there could have been 500 people in that, that place that had the same issue. There could have been 5,000. 
but I knew that God was speaking directly to me. So I got down on my knees and just started crying out. I first started asking God for forgiveness because of my unbelief. And then I started saying, God, I can, I trust you that you can heal me. And that day, that day was a hot August day. I remember it. God healed me. The thing that I had, only 1% of those who turn the age of 18 will ever be cured of it. So maybe I was just the lucky 1%. Or maybe Jesus was victorious on the cross. God wants you to know today that whatever your issue is, whatever illness you may have, whatever broken relationship you may have, whatever sin issue you may have, that what Jesus did on the cross was victorious. And I want to encourage you, don't believe the lies of the enemy any longer. You see, Satan will continue to tell you lie after lie after lie, hoping to hold you in captivity. He will continue to tell you things like God can't do this. Or why would God do it for you? I mean, God did it for Ernest, but why would God do it for you? He will continue to say things to you, to lie to you, to try to keep you in bondage. But Jesus come and died on the cross to set you free. You can be healed because God can do it. You can receive a job that you've been praying for and praying for and praying for because God can do the miraculous. Your relationship with your, your spouse or your former spouse or whoever it may be can be healed, can be reconciled because God can do the impossible. That's what he specializes in. When doctors and nurses and people can't figure out what's wrong, God knows and God can heal. When we can't do things on our own, when we can't reconcile a relationship, the good news is God can. And God is saying to us today that you can have victory because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus was not defeated. Ultimately, he was victorious. The third reason that a lot of people oppose Jesus is because when they see the cross, they think, man, he's just too dangerous. He's just too dangerous. Now, the third group that opposed Christ were the religious leaders. And the religious leaders consisted of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, the, and to combine, these two groups pretty much had the power over all the people. I mean, the Sadducees, they had the, the power and the influence amongst the, uh, the priestly and the aristocratic clans of the community. And then the Pharisees, they had a lot of power and control over the, the common person, over, you know, probably you and I. And together, they didn't agree on a whole lot of things. I mean, they fought about a lot of stuff. But one thing they did agree on is that Jesus was dangerous. You see, they controlled the vote of the people. I mean, the people almost idolized these religious leaders. I mean, they, little boys, when they grew up, they wanted to be like this Pharisee or this Sadducee. When you saw the religious leaders in the marketplace or in the temple, many times they would bow down to them. They would show them honor and respect. It was very similar to like modern day uh, professional athletes or movie stars or musicians. I remember the first concert that I ever went to, and uh, this is going to date me a little bit and, and uh, probably shame me a little bit too, but it was, uh, it was New Kids on the Block. Um, <laughs> don't judge me. Don't judge me. And I don't remember who all went with. I remember it was my sister and her friend, myself. And I'm just going to claim it was my dad was the fourth person. So there was another guy in the arena, you know, besides the little boys up on stage. And so we're sitting there watching. And as the lights go down, and these little figures come up onto the stage. I mean, people are going crazy. Like, woo! You know, and that was like my eight-year-old voice back then, you know. And we're just screaming. We're excited. We can't wait. And we couldn't see a whole lot. I mean, we were pretty far back from the stage. We were really far back from the stage. So all I could see was like these little figures going on. But as I looked around, man, the people were enthralled by what was happening. They were so excited. They were yelling. They were screaming. I mean, they were cheering and crying in the same breath. And that was just me and my dad. 
No, not really. Now, I don't know if the religious leaders had anybody cheering and crying after their sermons, but you get the point. I mean, the religious leaders, they were like the new kids on the block. And then up comes this Jesus guy, and he's like a little Justin Bieber, stealing all the thunder, all the <laughs> praise. I, ha, have you seen this Jesus guy? I mean, he took a meal for four people, and he turned it into a buffet for 15,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw him. I, I heard about him. I, I, I heard that he, he raised this girl who had just passed away. He raised her back to life. Guys, I was standing there when Jesus took some dirt and he spit into it, making it into this mud concoction. And he, he rubbed it on this guy's eyes. Now the guy was blind. The guy couldn't see from birth. And when the guy washed off this mud stuff, he could see. I'm talking spit and dirt. Jesus was doing things that the religious leaders couldn't do. He was also saying things that the religious that, that contradicted what the religious leaders were saying. I mean, he was telling people that they could be forgiven of their sins and that they no longer had to go through a religious leader to have access to God, but they could have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. You can imagine what the religious leaders are thinking at this point. I mean, Jesus was threatening their power. He was stripping them of their prestige, of their popularity, of everything. So we've got to do something, is what the religious leaders thought. So when Jesus was hanging up there on the cross, they must have thought they were victorious. They must have thought they had won. But let's face it. I mean, if Jesus really is who he said he is, that he is God. And if he really did come to do what he said he'd come to do, which is establish a new kingdom. Then he is the most dangerous person the world has ever seen. I mean, if Jesus really is God and if he really did come to establish a new kingdom, then he is the most dangerous person the world has ever seen. Not dangerous in a violent sense, but dangerous because he calls for change. He says, if you want to be a follower of me, you must change. You must be willing to be messed up. You must be willing to admit your sins and that you don't have it all together. You must be willing to say, you know what? I'm going to give up my power, my control, and I'm going to trust God. You must be willing to say, all right, God, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he not only calls for change in our lives personally, but he calls for change in the world. I mean, he makes some bold claims. In Luke chapter 12, verse 33, he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. In Matthew 5, 44, it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love them. Don't retaliate. Don't slander them. Love them. Oh, and by the way, and pray for them. I mean, he makes some bold commands to those who are going to follow him. And Jesus is saying, what I want you to do as my followers is I want you to live dangerously. I want you to live a life that is contrary to the status quo, that is contrary to the common culture. I want you to live a life that when people see you, they see me. And when people see you, they see God in flesh. They see God's love. They experience God's grace. I want you to live a life that is dangerous. And can you imagine if we did that? I mean, can you imagine what would happen if we lived the life that God calls us to live? Maybe we'd give the little bit that we have to someone else who has even less. Maybe we'd get on our knees and pray for our president, even if we don't sit in the same political boat as him. Maybe we'd be willing to share the greatest news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to our family and our friends, knowing that this is the greatest news that they could ever hear. Could you imagine if we lived dangerously for God? If we said, God, may your will be done. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.
And I don't know about you, but for, many time, for me, many times I'm more like the first century religious leaders. I don't really want to give up all my power. I mean, there are some days I'll submit all things to God, and there are other days I'm like, I, I want my will to be done. You know, and I pray for certain things, and I'm like, God, I know your will is better than mine, but I want this to be done. I don't like to give up my power. I don't like to give up my control. I like to be in charge. But Jesus is calling us to be changed, to live dangerously, to be willing to say, God, whatever your will is, may it be done. God, whatever you want. So here's my challenge to all of us. If the cross shows a Jesus that's weak and defeated, then keep living your lives for yourself. There's no reason to change. But if the cross shows a Jesus who is victorious, who is who he said he is, and that's God, and that he's come to do what he said he was coming to do, which is setting up a new kingdom, then may we fully submit our lives to him and live dangerously for him. You know, the greatest thing is that we don't have to view the cross from the vantage point of Good Friday. You see, on Good Friday, the disciples thought they had lost. On Good Friday, the opposition thought they had won. But Good Friday was just the lights going down before the encore. We have the vantage point of Sunday. And on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. On Sunday, God gave us hope again. On Sunday, God set us free. On Sunday, God established a new kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And because we have the vantage point of Sunday and not of Friday, we can believe that God can restore our marriages. We can believe that God can bring back those wayward kids. We can believe that God can heal us. But it takes us believing. And I'm not saying that if you pray and, and you believe something, that God will automatically answer it. But what I am saying is that if we don't believe that God can do it, then there's no way that he will. God's looking for us to have faith. God's looking for us to believe. Can you imagine if we were a church that truly viewed the cross from the vantage point of Sunday? If we were a church who said, God, I want to live dangerously for you. I want to give you all that I have. Not only would our lives be radically changed, but our community would be radically, cha radically changed and our world would be radically changed. May we be a church that doesn't oppose the cross, that doesn't oppose God, but may we be a church that understands that Jesus is not only strong, he's not only dangerous, but he's victorious. Victory. You have it. We have it. Now let's walk in it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you. Thank you, God, for the truth of your word. That, God, you sent your son to die for us. God, I thank you that Jesus truly is God and that he has established a new kingdom. And I thank you, God, that you are inviting us to be a part of that kingdom. And I pray for any of us today, Father, that don't know you. God, I pray that we would come to a personal relationship today. That, God, we would start anew that we would start fresh, that, God, we would give our lives in full submission to you. I pray for any of us, God, that do know you, but we've been building our lives on a, a system of works. God, I pray that today we would stop that and we would start believing that what you did on the cross is complete and it's finished and that your love for us is everlasting. God, I pray for those of us that are feeling like you are defeated and that you haven't come through on some promises 
God, I pray that we would continue to get on our knees and to continue to seek your will for our lives. That, God, we would believe that you can heal us. We would believe, God, that you can restore us. We would believe that you can reconcile relationships. That we would believe, God, that you can do the impossible. Father, I pray that whatever we're holding on to, we would give over to you. And that, Father, we would be giving, begin living a life that is dangerous. In Jesus' name, amen.